What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. John. Ma'am. You're always going to listen to the monetarists now, aren't you? Actually, I am, even though, as I said earlier this morning, they're going to be unbearable for the next kind of like year and a half at least. They are going to be unbearable. But but they are, they were right. And we talked about this before. And we have actually, this is one, one of the few things that we've got very right on this podcast is we have been talking to people all year who have been saying inflation is going to fall, it's going to fall fast. Look at the money supply numbers. The bank or the central banks have been unbelievably stupid. They didn't watch money supply on the way up, even though it was perfectly obvious that the sharp rise in money supply would lead to inflation with the normal 12 to 18 month lag, whatever it is. And it's also been perfectly obvious this year that the fall in money supply would lead us into sharply falling inflation, possibly even deflation by the beginning of next year. We've had a couple of guests on who've talked about that. And lo and behold, they were absolutely right. So uh, this week's inflation numbers came in very low, much lower than expected, right? Yeah, it uh, dropped to 3.9% year on year. And that's the that's CPI, which is the thing that the Bank of England's meant to target. But every, every other measure, now, I mean, there's about five of them now, all fell. And they all fell by more than expected. Um, and more it, than and expected much by every... Apart sorry, from the more than expected yes. by every monetarist. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, I mean, it's it's good news, obviously. Um, the 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 one tricky thing, of course, is you know, is this happening because the economy is actually slowing down and it's much worse out there than anyone thinks, and therefore twenty twenty four is going to be horrible recessionary, and we'll see a series of panicky rate cuts spiral downwards from the Bank of England, and it'll be too late to do anything, or. Actually, we're going to see real incomes rise slightly more significantly than we thought next year. Um, the pain, the kind of like the wage squeeze will come off. The state pension is set to rocket along with the minimum wage. Um, so actually, people are probably going to have quite a bit more spending power come the spring. Um, and also, what's his name? Jeremy Hunt is going to have quite a bit more leeway in the budget because the notional, you know, kind of amount of interest that we owe on our national debt will fall and so you know the OBR will be able to say actually he's got say 11 billion headroom um, so that'll go up and I mean obviously all of this stuff's just made up anyway but it gives them something well, to point to. I was going to say that is made up numbers made well, it's up, totally headroom, made up. Headroom. Oh, entirely made up. <laughs> yeah but, it's, but the point is like we've got to this point where we kind of have to make all these things up because the national debt's so high mm. anyway and so mm. Jeremy will be able to say, oh yeah, I'm still being fiscally responsible even as I cut income tax by X, Y, Z amount or whatever giveaway he decides to do ahead of the election. So yes, so basically, yeah, is it going to go Is it going to go the negative way or the positive way? I'm not sure. Yeah, I and mean, I suppose that the takeaway from all this is that the Bank of England really is absolutely useless. They didn't see it on the way up and now it's coming down faster than they expected. And they were probably right in some degree that it was transitory, but they got every part of that transitory bit wrong, right? And now they're going to look at it coming down fast, look into next year, start uh, cutting 
rates when you and I might say, wouldn't this be a great opportunity to normalize? And when it also isn't certain that inflation is definitely gone and we can see that there's going to be, um, or the trouble in the Middle East is going to lead us into more supply crunches, possibly that the geopolitical situation still suggests that things aren't quite as they should be. So now we worry, having previously worried earlier in the year that they might leave, that they might raise rates too fast and leave it too late to cut. Now I'm beginning to get worried on the other side because there is seemingly no end to their incompetence. The other thing actually that fascinates me is the the fact that the Fed kind of changed its mind so aggressively makes me wonder if actually maybe they are paying more attention to the money supply figures finally, um, and it's just on this side of the Atlantic that the the uh, well the group think remains you know very intense. Um, I mean, but yeah, I, I think that the thing that I've still got a lot of and I guess it's maybe just um, maybe probably just a cognitive bias, but I'm struggling to see actual deflation kicking in again. And I do think that long term we're in a more inflationary environment, but that doesn't preclude interest rates maybe going down to you know three and a half percent and just sitting there, you know, for as long as we can keep it at that level roughly. Um, and that would be nice to get back to something more normal. Although it probably does also mean that house prices are going to, um, you know, fail to fail to fall once more. So maybe the eighteen-year property cycle guys are right, along with the monetarists. They may be, and they have been historically. Which means, by the way, if the eighteen-year property cycle people are right, it's twenty twenty-six when everything goes horribly wrong. So it's still not not that far off. Not that that's something to bear in mind. And I have a feeling we're going to come back to house prices over the next little while. But jump. Before we finish, I want to go back to what you said about uh, Jeremy Hunt and his uh, entirely notional and imaginary headroom <laughs> to um, come up with a tax cut of some kind before the election. But assuming that uh, the next government is a Labour government, both in Westminster and in Scotland at Holyrood, it seems likely that there'll be a, a a degree of tax convergence between Scotland and the rest of the UK. Do you think that that will involve tax income taxes in England coming up to the new dramatically and bizarrely high levels in Scotland, or taxes in Scotland coming down to meet taxes in England? If you ask me a bit, it'd have to be taxes in Scotland. But that's only assuming that Labour does get in there. Um, yeah. I haven't been paying attention to the polls closely enough um, to be 100% confident that that's what's going to happen. But No, I'm not 100% confident either, but um, it does seem that the SNP seem incapable of getting anything at all right. I mean, that's been the case for a long time, but finally people are beginning to notice that, you know, it's a very high tax environment, public services are not that great. The mm -hmm. latest budgets have received absolutely uh, no praise from anybody anywhere, although to be honest, I haven't looked at the headlines of the national yet. They may be praising the budget. God knows how. We better go and look at that later. But we now we now have taxes in, in Scotland. We have income taxes at, we've now got six bands, which is slightly nuts in itself. Um, and if you are earning over £75,000, you will now pay 
the advanced rate of 45%, so 47% with your NI. If you are paying the top rate, you'll be paying 48% plus 2%, of course, your NI. So the top rate in tax of over 125,000 is now 50%. And that means that if you're earning, say, 120,000 in the UK, you'll be paying very, very significantly more tax, 5,000 pounds plus more than you would be paying in England. Which brings me to asking you, John, what's your personal finance tip of the week? Move out of Scotland. Move out of Scotland, fine. But all I would say about that is that it's very, very, very tempting. But England looks like a safe haven right now. Will England still be a safe haven uh, after the next election? We will find out. Um, but yes, there will be a bit of a brain drain from Scotland now because everyone assumes that the UK government can conceivably be as stupid as the Scottish government, but I wouldn't bet on that. <sighs> I don't think I can handle a 69.5% marginal tax rate over £100,000. No, you can't handle that kind of rate, John, and nor can the economy. And now imagine, just imagine, that you moved to Scotland and you had your um, student loan repayments on top of that. Can you handle that? No, you can't. You wouldn't come. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, another topic slightly off the beaten markets path for your holiday listening. It's a conversation with filmmaker and professor Peter Bick. Bick is a director, producer and writer of Carbon Nation and a professor at Arizona State University in both the School of Sustainability and the Cronkite School of Journalism. He's also the director of Roots So Deep, you can see the devil down there, which is a four-part documentary series looking at how cows can in fact help us combat climate change by embracing a different way of grazing cattle. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Peter, hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, nice to be here, Maren. Thank you. This is such an important topic. I want to just start by first telling the, the listeners that we're going to talk about agriculture. We're going to talk about in particular about cattle and about farming cattle and how that, uh, the effects that might or might not have on the environment. But I think pretty much everybody who's listening to this podcast will have an idea in their head that beef in particular is incredibly bad for the environment in every possible way. So we read this in the newspapers all the time. I'm just going to read you a, a little bit from a magazine called The Week, which summarizes news stories here in the UK, very popular. Eating meat significantly increases your carbon footprint and beef is one of the worst culprits. A 2022 study found that beef production produces over 99 kilograms of greenhouse gasp emissions per kilogram of meat far higher than any other meat. Cattle is the animal species responsible for most emissions. And the article, like almost all other articles on the topic, goes on to explain that something like a quarter of the global greenhouse gas emissions in the food industry come from beef production alone. And therefore, we must all stop eating beef, uh, stop, stop livestock farming, and eat nothing but chickpeas forever. And as I particularly don't like chickpeas or lentils for that matter, what I'm hoping is that you will explain to us today that that simply isn't necessary and cows are just not that bad. So the idea that, that meat is bad for the planet, that cattle are ruining the planet, that's studying a sick system. 
that I agree with. Industrial cattle production is really, really bad for the planet. But what we're looking at is cattle production that's really, really good for the planet. And it, it comes down to how the animals are grazed and replicating the way bison and great herding animals moved across, for example, the Great Plains of the United States. And, and so that, what we call adaptive multipatic grazing, is proving to be an, an enormous environmental benefit. Could you tell us in a couple of sentences why it is that beef farmed in the traditional manner, well, traditional, but the, the modern manner, and particularly in the US, is so awful? Because actually, cattle farming in the US is different to cattle farming in, in much of Europe. What makes it so uniquely horrible? In the, in the US, uh, when folks overgraze their cattle, which is kind of the norm where you get the, the blades of grass really short so you could, you know, look, it'll look like a golf course. Um, you're, you're not allowing nature to live in the way it wants to live. You're not allowing the plants to grow up to the height they want to grow up. You're not allowing birds and bugs to come into the system. Well, the grazing we're talking about, adaptive multipatic grazing or holistic planned grazing or mob grazing or strip grazing, lots of names, basically, produces on any size farm the animals all in one herd and they move around in very tight packs for very short periods of time. So it's a short duration grazing and then they move on to the next little piece and then what happens is most of the farm gets to rest most of the time. And the farmers that do this type of grazing, they're focused on soil health first. And one of the ways to get there is to let the grasses and the forbs and weeds and everything else to grow up to about waist height during the growing season. The animals eat half of that, stomp the rest of it down to give the soil a nice cover. Their manure and urine is evenly spread and then the land gets to rest. And that's the replication of the way the bison moved across the Great Plains here in the US and built incredibly deep, rich topsoil. So the, bi the bison moved around the plains in very tight groups, right? So huge herds, very tightly together, grazing one section and then moving on to another section to graze it, graze it. And obviously, no fences. They can go for miles in these tight groups moving across the plains. So the majority of the plains at any one time were not grazed at all. Right. It's, it's a long rest period between grazings. And you know whether it was tight or not tight, those sorts of things you could, you could debate, but they were massive, massive herds. And they always went to where there was better food or they went to where animals weren't hunting them. And so that's why they kept moving on. So the farmers are replicating that movement on their farms, whether it's 40 acres or you know 20 hectares or 100 hectares, it's totally doable. And it, it's an amazing thing to hear from farmers how well it works, how many more species of plants they're seeing growing in their fields when they just don't let the animals overgraze their fields. Seeds they didn't even plant, they're just sitting there in the soil, not expressing themselves. And when those plants grow up, they're attracting so many different insects. So you have this great balance of insect community, which then brings in a whole lot of birds. And here in the United States, our grassland bird population is over 50% depleted since 1970. And on the farms that we're studying that are doing the adaptive grazing, they're having 300% more of those uh, endangered birds on these farms. Wildlife is coming to these farms. I just was at a conference with 700 farmers and people were just coming up to us, coming up to us, coming up to us. Same story, same story. We're seeing many more birds, much more wildlife. Our water cycling's better. We don't have 
huge input costs. Um, our animals are selling for more. It, it's just a consistently good story for the farmers. But what we wanted to know was whether it was good for the planet. And so we went to great lengths and, and raised a lot of money to study the greenhouse gas cycling on these farms, comparing it to their neighbor across the fence in five replications in the Southeast US. And the greenhouse gas data that, that we're, it's pre-published right now, um, so it'll, it'll be a bit different, but close. Um, we account for all three of the major greenhouse gases. So a lot of the studies that you quoted at the top of the piece, they're looking at methane. Methane, 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 methane. But there's three greenhouse gases on, on these agricultural systems that are, that are important. Carbon, CO2, methane, nitrous oxide. And so when we account for all three of those greenhouse gases, the method of grazing is drawing down so much carbon that it overtakes the warming of the methane and the nitrous oxide. We don't even begin to say that cows don't emit methane. Of course, cows emit methane. And nitrous oxide is a natural byproduct of their urine on the fields and things like that. Um, but the greenhouse gas sink of what we're seeing in our research, of all three greenhouse gases all being accounted for in a very, very conservative way, it's called uh, GWP100, um, we're seeing a drawdown of 12.1 tons of CO2 equivalent per hectare per year on the adaptive side of the fence. And we're actually seeing drawdown on the conventional side of 2.9 tons of CO2 equivalent per hectare per year. Again, those are numbers that are not yet published, but that's what we're looking at right now. So, so the idea that, that grazing cannot be a, a climate solution does not work with our data. And we've spent 10 years on this. We're looking at this. I personally, you know, I'm just looking for solutions to climate change. This is the thing that caught my eye. This is the thing we've been looking at for a long time. And so this is what we found. Animal impact properly used on land is what nature developed for us, for the planet, not for us, for the planet. It's incredibly effective. And to act like we should just take all the animals off the land because we don't like people eating meat is not really looking at what nature has provided the planet. Let's look again at it because not, not everybody will understand how it is that this type of grazing creates a carbon sink. So what you're telling us is that the carbon sink created by this grazing offsets all the, the farting and the burping of the cows, right? And as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, as I understand it, this is about um, a the depth of the roots of the plants, so the deeper the roots of the, the grasses and the other plants in, in the pastures, the deeper they go, um, the more carbon can be held in the soil. And as the microbes in the soil develop and are not churned up, there's no, no plowing, et cetera, that also helps. Is, is that how it works? Yeah, those are all accurate, accurate statements for sure. So when you have plants that are being overgrazed, think of it as, as sort of a mirror. The the roots are very short on the bottom too. And the, the longer you let a plant grow and the higher you let a plant grow above the soil surface, the roots are growing deeper into the soil surface. And so what that does is that brings carbon down into the soil community, bring, helps create channels for water to absorb into the soil. And when you have a lot of different types of plants, not just one or two or three types of plants growing in that pasture, but if you have seven or more, 10, 12, 
then you're, you're creating a situation with enormous increases of the soil microbial diversity and also the soil microbial abundance. And so, when you have a lot of microbes in the soil doing their job, the plants are actually feeding the microbes carbon. And so, when those plants are eaten half, like we were talking about, the, the, the cattlemen have the animals eat half of that plant above the surface, they stomp the rest down, they keep the soil cool. Keeping the soil cool keeps the microbes thriving. Exposed soil can get insanely hot insanely quickly. Like you can have soil on an 80 degree day, if it's exposed, be 105, 110 degrees. So you're actually killing your microbes. But when you keep the soil cool, the soil surface covered, the cool soil, the microbes, they're thriving. The plants are bringing carbon into the soil system. The microbes are feeding the plants all the minerals and nutrients they need. So you actually get nutrient dense forage being grown from that microbe rich ecosystem below ground where carbon is the currency. I know your show's about money. Well, carbon's the currency with microbial life below ground and, and diverse plants, big plants, tall plants, those are bringing more carbon into the system. So that's how these, these farmers are drawing down so much more carbon than the warming of the methane and the nitrous oxide that's coming up out of the system and from the cattle. That's how it's happening. It's photosynthesis. It's just simply photosynthesis. That's everything we learned at school when we were 12, right? Um, and presumably the depth of the, the deeper the roots of the plants go, the more resilient the land is to drought. Is that right? That's accurate. And I'll just give you a little bit more nuance. Um, when you have deep roots, you're, 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 you're breaking up the soil. So the soil is porous. And when you have a lot of microbes, the soil is also porous because the soil itself is actually made of dead microbes, like up to maybe 50% of healthy soils are dead microbes. And so that's like a sponge. It's very air, very porous, very aerated. So those roots are aerating the soil, right? So you'd get different types of roots that are breaking through compacted soil. So all of that air through the soil system is allowing the rain to go in to the soil system itself. So the, the adaptive side of the fence in our study is getting two more inches of rain soaking in per hour than their neighbor. And that's a huge amount of water when you're thinking about, you know, one acre inch of water is 27,000 gallons. Two acre inches of water is 54,000 gallons. And if you have a thousand acre farm, which is not unheard of over here, not as common over there, but if you just use the math, that's 54 million gallons of water per hour that the adaptive folks are getting. So all that water is going into their system when it rains and all those porous spaces are holding that water. So when the droughts come, which they will come and they'll come more and more, we'll have heavier rains and bigger droughts as climate change takes off this global weirding it's doing. That water's staying in the soil in these little pockets and it's actually more resilient in drought uh, for the farmer. And we've had farmer after farmer after farmer still growing their, their, their forage when their neighbors are feeding hay to their animals at a very high expense because their land is more resilient in drought, which is exactly what you said. It's also more resilient in floods. It's more durable. The, the soil soaks up more water. So there's less flooding downstream. So farmers, you know, if a whole watershed of farmers is focusing on soil health and getting their soils super healthy, super porous, then the flooding downstream is going to be mitigated. It's going to be much, much less. Okay. 
Interesting. So what we've got here is, as you as you describe it, and I would encourage everybody to watch the, the documentaries you've done on this, as you describe it, you've got something that massively improves biodiversity, improves the resilience of the soil and hence of the land, um, is a great assistance in the fight against rising global temperatures. But sounds like an awful lot of work for farmers. I mean, I've spoken to some regenerative farmers using these AMP systems, and they tell me that they're moving their, their cows kind of every day. Or twice a day. So there's an enormous, or twice a day. So you've got an enormous amount of planning to do apart from anything else. You know how we all hate admin. This is admin for starters. And then there's the actual work of, of moving, moving cows around the place. So this is something of a, of a barrier, presumably, to getting farmers to want to use these systems rather than just you know, shove more fertilizer on the land as, the, as they're used to doing. It would be a barrier if it were true. But I've just met so many farmers. Like I said, I was just at a conference with 700. None of them are complaining about more work. Uh, they're actually enjoying their work more because they're not in a tractor making hay. They're on the land watching their animals. And the movement of the animals is super, super easy. It's just putting a polywire poly fence up and then putting a gate on it and opening the gate. The animals move quite naturally to the next spot because they know there's better food. They know what's coming. They know there's going to be a better, a better diet for them across the fence. So we've made 10 short films about amp grazing. That series is called Carbon Cowboys. It's carboncowboys.org. That's the historical sort of catalog of watching this type of grazing in a lot of different ecosystems, including Cornwall and Devon, and all over the US and some in Canada. The new work that we're doing right now that is based on the research that we've been doing over the last, well, it's a 10-year project, and we've been out in the field for five, is called Roots So Deep, You Can See the Devil Down There. And so that website, you can also go to carboncowboys.org and find out all about that as well. That film is not yet released to the public. We're screening it in screenings in barns and churches and people's homes and theaters all over the US. We've done a bunch of screenings in the UK as well. And so that's, that's the film that's about all the research. It's about all the farm families. It's about the scientists on our team. And, and, and you just see how easy it is, how much more enjoyable it is for the farmers to be doing this way. So it's not there is some planning, but they, it's, not a, it's not a barrier, it's not a burden from the hundreds of farmers that I've spoken with. I'm not a farmer. Is it commercially viable? I mean, this is the, well, maybe not viable, but is it better financially? And one of the things that I've been wondering about recently, I was um, helping judge a, a series of awards for, for small companies the other day, and they were all absolutely fascinating. And company after company after company came in and talked to us about how they were more sustainable than a company that did something similar and how they did it better and how they were, you know, the way that they did it improved carbon emissions, et cetera, et cetera. And my question to each of them was, okay, that's great. But if you were to put the environmental impact of your work aside, is your product also absolutely better than a product that does not have the sustainability attached to it? Or is it the same just a bit more expensive. And I suppose that's my question to you as well. Farmers who take on board the information and the research that you've done and move over to a more regenerative style of agriculture, do they find that their income goes up or down? And is their meat of a higher quality when you or I might get to eat it? So 
On the income side, the farmers tell us that they're getting themselves out of debt by going to regenerative agriculture. Um, conventional agriculture is creates a lot of debt for the farmers. Uh, it's not based on profit per acre. It's, pay, it's based on uh, yield per acre. But when you talk about profit per acre, the farmers who go towards regenerative agriculture are making a lot more money for themselves. Their operating costs go way down. Let's just talk about nitrogen. So nitrogen, um, in our study, the farmers were reporting about 50 grand a year they're spending on nitrogen. And that was before uh, uh, Putin invaded the Ukraine. And that number's now up to $100,000, $150,000 a year on nitrogen fertilizer to then grow all the hay they need to grow to then feed their animals hay. When the adaptive farmers don't grow hay, they don't put nitrogen on their ground and they don't have that huge expense or that stress because if you put nitrogen on the ground and it doesn't rain in a couple of days, you've lost. It's a gamble and it won't, it won't benefit you at all. It's like throwing that kind of money away. The adaptive farmers don't put nitrogen down, have grown forage around their farms enough that they don't have to feed hay except for in the wintertime, and sometimes even then not that much. So huge, huge cost reduction right there. And then according to our study, they actually have more functional nitrogen in their soil than the folks who are spending tens of thousands of dollars applying nitrogen to their farms. And so naturally working with nature, the nitrogen is there and it's doing its job for them. Whereas the folks who are putting nitrogen down are, are in, a, in a spiral in the wrong direction. So just the operating costs right there, the, they all talk about how um, their medical bills are much, much less. They're all talking about- um, Because the cows are happier and eating a more diverse diet. Well, I don't know about happy, but they're healthier. Healthier. Healthier normally means happier. I'm with you. I'm with you. But, uh, but, but we can't prove that. I'll give you that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but they're, they're healthier animals. They don't need the antibiotics. They don't need all these medicines that farmers are having to do conventionally. And therefore, the costs are a lot, lot less. Um, the pesticides. These farmers aren't spraying pesticides because they're having such a diverse forage community, such a diverse plant community that the bugs are as equally as diverse and it's a much more functional bug community. Um, in, our, in our research, it's 33% more diverse and functional insect community on the amp side versus the conventional side. So what does that mean? That means that bugs that are pests, if you just have a monoculture, that one bug's just rampant in that monoculture and it's destroying everything. Well, if it's in a situation where there's 12 types of plants, and it's not in a monoculture, it's actually a functional citizen of that community. When the bug community is more functional and more balanced, it's much more, um, it's actually cycling carbon more. It's all part of a system. And so a lot of the science that's gone on in the past is looking at pieces of this system, looking at the methane only from animals and um, and getting a picture where you really have to look at the system, which is what the scientists on our team have taught me and have demanded to even be a part of this team that we do look at the system. And that's, that's a part of that. So, so, so less pesticides, less herbicides, if any. Sometimes folks are putting some herbicides down. Sometimes they're putting them down to, to kill a cover crop. Other people are crimping the cover crop. 
Um, so it's just a lot less input costs. And then the animals themselves, from the data we got from the farmers, they're selling their animals for hundreds of dollars more per head. And so there's there's you know money to be made on that side, money to be saved on the other hey, side. On. Why are they selling them for more per head? Because they are marketing them as a premium product, or because they are heavier? Yeah, yeah, but more of a premium product. Okay, interesting. So they, and do you have to reduce the number of animals in your herd for a given number amount of land to do this, or the herd size remains the same? No, these farmers are doubling and tripling and quadrupling the amount of animals they can produce on their land with the same rainfall because they're producing so much more forage. Hmm. So, so they're able to increase. Why isn't everybody doing this? Why are there any non-regenerative farms left? They don't know about it. They, are, they will now. Some of them will now. I'm not sure how many farmers listen to this podcast, but I think we can, we can get it out there a bit. Well, we're, that's obviously what we're working on too is, is, you know, farmers love their land and they don't love being in debt. I guarantee you that. Um, and, you know, the suicide rates in the US and the UK are incredibly high for farmers and debt is a lead, leading cause for that. Um, it's the third highest rate in the US. Is it? But by profession? Of any group. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can this translate across to arable farming? I mean, I've written quite a lot over the years about soil health and about soil depth and about the disappearance of topsoil. Uh, across well across the world actually not just in the US and I don't know if you remember a few years ago there was a, a lot of talk about how we only had 10, 10 good harvests left globally etc because our, our soil was so thin topsoil. I think it was 60. That was out of the UN that was 60. Was it 60? Okay not 10 then I go can't help but exaggerate. So how do you translate this across to arable? Well you can, you can, you can uh, integrate the livestock production and the arable production and then you're going to be fertilizing your land for a profit rather than having to pay for fertilizer. And that's being done. I mean, that's how it used to be done all the time. And now um, colleagues of ours, Alan Williams and Gabe Brown and their group, um, Understanding Ag, they're, they're working with General Mills and a lot of other big companies at, at scale doing that work and teaching farmers about this. Um, farmers love it. I and that's a big do. sign. I mean, what, what you're describing here is something where you, you can do a lot less work, uh, have more animals, uh, make more money, and uh, uh, create a wonderful environment on, on, your, on your farm and be a carbon sink at the same time. There's got to be a downside here, Peter. There's got to be a downside. Providing wildlife habitats for, for endangered animals is what's also happening. So I've been looking for a, a downside for 10 years, but you were saying that it was less work. I'll say that farmers are telling me it's either less work or it's the same amount of work, but a lot more enjoyable work. So I'm hearing that kind of spectrum. Um, but the downside that I'm discovering right now is secession. It's what happens to the next generation. The farmers that are doing it right now, their kids aren't necessarily wanting to be farmers themselves. So what happens to that land after this generation passes? That to me is the weak link to having, you know, you're, you're building up the soil, you're getting all that carbon into the soil system, but you're, what's going to happen when those farmers pass on? That to me is a, is a really important thing to be looking at. How do we keep the land in agricultural production? We don't need more neighborhoods, we need more farms. It seems to me that that's something that you may find happens 
naturally. I would have thought there's an awful lot of people who would love to to work on the land if, as you say, it's a it's a much more enjoyable environment and it's also a lower chemical environment and a less labor heavy environment. I would have thought that would be very attractive to the young, particularly if, as you say, people are making an awful lot more money now. Money is attractive. Yeah, there there are definitely people who want to work on the land, but they might not be the land owners. And so if the farmer's children aren't into farming and they want to make money from the land when their parents pass, that's what I'm talking about. And so folks are working on it. It's definitely a it's a thing that's being looked at and talked about. And farmers are making their land into easements, so they'll have to stay in agriculture from in perpetuity. Um, finding the managers, training the managers, those are all the issues. It was just like uh, you know when renewable energy is coming in, you got to train all sorts of new skill sets to to be installing the solar panels, to be putting in waterless toilets and those sorts of things. It's it's the same kind of thing where we need a lot more farmers trained in these methods. But it's it's certainly happening. But you asked me for a weak link and that's that is the weak link that I see. Peter, this all sounds absolutely brilliant and I, I really appreciate you coming on to tell us about it. But let me just ask you one more thing before I let you go. Um, obviously I'm based in the UK and most of my listeners are based in the UK. If they would like to buy beef that is raised like this and feel good about their meat eating, eating habits, I certainly do. Is there a mark of any kind? Is there a way that we can buy AMP produced beef and know that we're buying it? Or is there not yet any kind of, I don't know, kite mark for, uh, for AMP beef? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I know folks are working on that. I, I know of one company, it's called Regenified. And it's regenified.com. They're working exactly on that. And they have a very rigorous uh, system where they go to the farms and they measure what the farms are doing and they assess the farms. And then when the farms get to a certain level, they can use that badge. That's the one I know about. The other thing you can look for is grass-fed, grass-finished. That doesn't mean it's going to be amp-grazed, but at least you're on the right path. Um but yeah, that that's a that's a needed thing. But it's you know this is this is not a uh, it's not everyone's not doing it right now. You know what I mean? It's it's like three four percent of U.S. farmers are somewhere along the path of this type of grazing. So there's a lot of uh, opportunity, a lot of opportunity. I know this shows about investment, and I know a lot of people are talking about investments in land. If you invest in the land and then you regenerate the land, is the land more valuable? That's definitely something people have been looking at for a while now. And then the whole issue of carbon credits. Can you trust soil carbon credits? Can you trust the measurement? Can you trust the models? Those are all really important questions that are being answered on a day-to-day basis. And it's sort of a wild west right now with people claiming that they can prove carbon credits, where sometimes their, their claims are thin. And other times their claims are accurate. Yeah, there's actually there's a there's a company there's a company here in Scotland up in Dundee uh, that does exactly that does that test soil every three years for farmers to see how they're doing on building up the carbon and then that allows them to claim carbon credits on it. So in in that sense, you know, there is a a financial incentive to in, improve the carbon content of, of your soil. Although one would like to think that it was about more than just credits, but there you go. That's that's worthy of a whole show talking about the, the voluntary carbon market right now. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And um, Peter, we will leave that for another day, but I think there's a yep. lot to come back to here. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. So interesting. Thank you, Marin. I appreciate it. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So, John, this was all slightly off topic, and I know you're not an agricultural expert, nor am I, but what did you think about this? I thought it was really interesting. Um, I I mean, I had a few questions, but they were sort of similar to the ones that, that you raised, but, I mean, it kind of struck me as, I mean, you know much more about farming than I do, but it kind of, it's kind of like rewilding, but practical rewilding, um, you know, that thing of like letting, letting nature look after itself and being mm. a bit more in harmony with the you know biodiversity and things like that and that actually being a better way to you know just do everything um i mean so from yeah, that I point mean, of view it's not it's not quite rewilding i mean I, I see what you mean but it's um you know actually that the the cattle in, in something like this are very corralled you know they're very controlled yeah uh, you have to be in this bit now and they're very crowded together um, and then they're moved on very quickly. So it's, it's a very controlled environment in, in, in some ways, but it also works to replicate a natural environment for herd animals. So you, know, you can do the same with, with any pasture-fed pasture, pasture fed animals. Um, but the really interesting bit for, for me in it, I think, is the, uh, is the soil health bit. And I've, I've been to get, visit a couple of regenerative farms in, in Scotland that do exactly this or try and yeah. do exactly this. You know, you have to it's quite a lot of work to try and transform a farm from traditional traditional agriculture to regenerative agriculture. But I have been to a couple, and when you look at, you know, go into the fields and yank out a, a clump of grass that is part of a traditional uh, farming method and then yank out a bit that is part of this new AMP style of farming, or old style of farming, should I say, and you can really see the difference in, in and going back to the roots so deep, you know, you can really see how the roots of the of the grass and it's not just grass, of course, because much more diverse inside the um, the AMP fields. You can see how deep it goes, and you can see how the clumping is different. You can see how the soil is different, and understand how that works with the microbes. It's absolutely fascinating to see it in real life. In real life, so you know it works. And soil health is, uh, you know subject at the moment, but it, it simply couldn't be more important. I mean, that's all we've got, right? The health of our soil. That's all we've got. That fails. Everything fails. And so, because this was the, the, I mean, and you actually did ask this question, but but all the way through it, I was thinking, right, well, what's the downside? Um, is this one of those things where it's like, say, organic farming, where it's all very well, but you get like maybe one cow that costs, you know, £100 per kilo of steak as opposed to 10 that mean everyone can eat meat because obviously that democratization of the food supply etc etc is one of the the issues on which all of this pivots you know the the whole thing about um you know supermarkets versus local shops and all of that sort of stuff the reason we don't the reason we do things in a high intensity way is so that food is affordable for the wider population but i i got the impression from what he's saying that a low Farmers can sell it at premium prices because of the method. If everyone adopted this, we'd still have as many cows, and you probably wouldn't be able to charge premium anymore. Is that? Yeah, I think I, that's a, that's a basic point. I mean, this this is still experimental, right? I mean, yeah. there's not that many farmers doing it, and I think that the main problem is the transition 
as everything, mm. you know, persuading people to take the risk of making this kind of transition. So in the beginning, it's only going to be the rich farmers that do it, right? Uh, because they can, they can afford the risk and they can afford the experimentation. Um, so bit by bit, as it starts to work, it should be easier for other farmers to, to make that transition. But I suppose that the, the important thing about it is that you and I have often talked about how economies should work with how people are. And you always mm. say that capitalism is the only answer for people because it is the only system that is natural to us because we're accumulators and barterers and self-improvers, etc. We're natural capitalists. We're also natural meat eaters, um, it turns <laughs> out. Yes, and so we're beginning to see uh, a little bit of reversal in veganism. I'm beginning to uh, hate mail these look at address, of course. And we're beginning to see that all the um, the artificial uh, meat companies, I don't mean the, um, the, the lab-grown meats, but I mean the very processed food that pretends yeah. to be meat, etc. These companies are failing, and various companies that only produce vegetarian food are failing. I saw Heather Mills' company went down the other day. So... You know, it, it's not necessarily something that in the end, people love the idea, the moral idea of becoming a, a vegetarian or a vegan, but in the end, people tend not to stick at it. So it may be that like we're natural capitalists, we're also natural meat eaters. And if we are, then we need to find a way to produce meat in a way that is both humane, sustainable, and, and carbon friendly. And if we're going to do that, this is a very, very clear answer to that conundrum. Well, I think, I mean, when... On that point, I thought it was really interesting about the carbon credits because obviously, and as I was saying to some of a wonderful producer that we should do a show on the whole mess of the carbon credit sphere. Because Absolutely, we should. Yeah, I mean, as Peter says, it is the Wild West, but the point is if you can have, you know, farms, particularly in the developed world where, where, where confidence in institutions and regulations is very high, and people will actually be checking this stuff as opposed to, you know, pretending that they're protecting a chunk of rainforest that doesn't even exist. Um, yeah. Then, I mean, that would also be a great way to get farmers to do it because it's kind of like the wind farms. It's like, you know, the, you know, the turbines all went up because the, the owners got paid absolutely, you know, tons for allowing them on their land. And if, if you've got the kind of carbon market, and you know premium carbon credits to go along with your premium beef. Then, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's honestly it's, it's very exciting. It is, yeah. And we talked a bit in there about um, about not much, but about how that can transfer across to arable farming as well, because of course, the Arab, traditional arable farming really does strip the health out of the soil, and it's a it's a long term worry. We talked briefly in there about the the constant scaremongering about how many harvests there are left, and uh, I remembered reading somewhere that it was ten years. And it was like, no, it's sixty. But even if if it were true that there were only six years of good harvest, that's still really, really yeah, right. bad, really bad. Um, so, and that's that's one of the reasons why there is this very intense focus on on soil health. And so, if you can shift the ideas of the regenerative farmers over from um, uh, from pasture pasture meat farming to arable farming as well, I think that really does become very interesting. Yeah, no, I thought it was great. We should. I, uh, yeah, we should actually, do more on farming. We should do more on these slightly kind of edge case subjects. And, uh, you know, readers write in and let us know if there's anything that you're particularly you know, that's engaged right. with. Every, everybody talks about interest rates, right? We, yeah. we, can, we, can, uh, we can go a little more niche. Well, that, but this um, really matters for the entire economy, doesn't it? Because, you know, well, what's that's, more that's fundamental true. than food? Um, that's true. Why am I saying this is niche? This is not niche. This is vital. Right, listeners. Um, if you'd like to hear more of this kind of thing, uh, let us know. In fact, 
do you know what? We're coming into Christmas year, coming into the end of the year. John and I have been doing this for a year now. We would really like to know what you think. We'd really like to know what you want to hear more of. Do you want to hear us talking more about how, how cheap UK equities are and which investment trusts you should buy as a result? I think you probably do. Or do you want to hear more about uh, what you should be doing in Japan, what you should be doing in Asia? Should you be buying equities in China or not? Uh, are you growth? Are you value? This kind of thing. Let us know. Do you want to hear more about the bond market? Do you actually want to hear more about arable farming <laughs> or about space. I would like to talk more about space. Our producer says I'm obsessed with space, but I am obsessed with space. You know, the earth is finite. Look what, look what else is out there. We're going to do more podcasts on space. <laughs> anyway, let us know what you want. We would really appreciate that. And then we can tailor, tailor what we talk about more to you, although you may still not agree with some of the things we say. Right. And all that remains for me to say to you is do have a very, very happy Christmas. John, would you like to say happy Christmas to listeners as well? Merry Christmas, listeners. Okay. Thanks for listening to this week's Marion Talks Money. We'll be back in time for the new year. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And do please talk about us over Christmas. If you would like to introduce the subject of something we talked about in our podcast over your Christmas lunch and encourage your relatives to listen to the podcast, we would appreciate that. This episode was hosted by me, Marion Zamzet Webb. It was produced by Summer Sadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Peter Bick and to John Stepek as usual. And of course, our weekly reminder to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. The link for that is in the show notes. And we will also put in the show notes a link to some of Peter's work. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.